WAGP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. I have before me this morning the very Word of God, the only book God ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible. And so we're here to study it and discuss it in this hour together. As always, if you are here and you are listening and have a question and you would like to talk, maybe an issue that uh, you're facing in your personal Bible study or ministry or life or church, and if I can be of help, by God's grace, I will do the best I can with his help. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, locally, the number is 525-1859. That's 843-525-1859. Or if you're listening through the Internet in another state, you can call us directly on our toll-free number. That's 877, the call letters of our station, WAGP 980. Or if it's of help to you, you can just email us here directly into the studio. We get a lot of email uh, each week during the Bible line and sometimes during the week that people ask us to respond to. And the email address here is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. When you call, you can uh, simply dictate your question or you can remain totally anonymous, uh, however you'd like to to give it to us, we'll be happy to receive it. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and we've got a number of questions that have already come in via email and left over actually from last week, okay. so let's get to them. All right, fantastic. One person writes, I have a pastor friend of mine that believes the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins of Matthew 25 are two types of Christians. He believes that the wise virgins speak of uh, Christians that have the Holy Ghost, and the foolish virgins are Christians that do not. And he thinks that when the rapture takes place, the five foolish will miss the rapture. I know this is wrong, and I showed him that the Lord said unto the five foolish, I never knew you, which parallels Matthew 7 and Luke 13, but he is still struggling. Do you have any further advice I might be able to share? Well, you gave a, a good answer because you're, you're trying to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Uh, what, one thing that you might do that would, would help is, um, again, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. Those are added almost a millennium after the Bible's completed. But they are there to help us find our way around. But sometimes they can be distracting. So when I look at this text of Scripture, there's an overall flow uh, that, you know, the Lord's dealing with. Uh, number one, I, I believe this is a text, a sermon that deals with what's going to take place during the tribulation period. Uh, And I think, among other things, he's exhorting people to be ready. And so if you uh, back it up just a little bit, 
um, to Matthew 24. He said, therefore, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have broken in. For this reason, you be alert. And so then he begins with um, a, a series of illustrations that really key off of our need to be alert. So he asks the question, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household and gave their gave to them food at their proper time? Blesses that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I'll say to you, he'll put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect and in an hour when he does not know. And he'll cut him into pieces and assign him into a place with the hypocrites. And there there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he starts with an exhortation, be ready. And then in what follows, beginning here at the end of 24, all the way through 25, there's two groups of people, those who are ready, those who are not. Uh, those who are faithful and sensible or prudent, as he just illustrated, those who are not. Now, again, the Bible does not teach that we're saved by works. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But if we are saved by the grace of God, uh, the life will show it. There'll be a change of heart. There'll be a new life. And that's apparent. Uh, he has already said, I could have backed up a little bit even before that exhortation, when he says, therefore, be on the alert, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, it goes back to what he had just said. For he said, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So again, two groups of people. Those who were ready in Noah's day, at that time only eight who were spared, the rest perished. And then he goes on, he says, two men will be in the field, one taken, one left. Again, those who are taken away in judgment, this verse has nothing to do with the rapture. Those who are left, who survived the tribulation, uh, who will rule and reign with Christ. Therefore, be on the alert. Uh, and again, he tells, it parallels between the faithful servant who's sensible and prudent and the one who is not. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were prudent. So again, he's keen off of what he's just taught. Uh, he's just given an example of a faithful, sensible slave versus the evil slave. Now he's going to do it using a marriage illustration from the first century. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in their flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. And again, that is a metaphor that's used in both Testaments, typically to describe lost people. Um, but at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom comes out to meet them. Then all those virgins rose, rose and trimmed their lamp, and the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, Say, No, there won't be enough for us. Uh, go get your own. And while they're away, the bridegroom comes, and the door is shut to the wedding feast, and only the five virgins who are ready, who are alert, who are obeying the Lord's command, who are prepared and expectant because they're true believers, they're brought into the wedding feast. The rest are left out. 
Uh, they beg to come in, and again, he gives that same answer, I do not know you, uh, which again is characteristic of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 7, when he describes um, those who are born again and those who are not. And then he says, for it's just like a man who goes out on a journey, and he entrusts the master various possessions. He gives different degrees of, of, of talents, if you remember the parable, um, and then at the end of the parable, the guy who is given five, he's rewarded. Those who's, who are given two, he's rewarded. But that wicked, lazy slave who did nothing with the, the talent, the sum of money that God had entrusted to him or his master had entrusted to him, he, he's, he's assigned into outer darkness. And then in the final illustration, uh, where he again separates the sheep from the goats and those who honored the Lord with their lives such that when he was in prison, so to speak, via his people, they cared for him, they fed him, they clothed him versus those who were unfaithful because they were not true believers and they could care less. So to to come with an interpretation of the 10 virgins um, who, where you have five who are prepared and five who are not. And when they all get drowsy, when they all sleep, and then the bridegroom comes and wakes them up, there's five that are ready because they've been prepared and five who are not. And five meet judgment and never know the Lord. They're not invited to the wedding feast and and five are because they were true believers. So to to take this one section and isolate it from the broad thrust of what Jesus has been saying, where he's throughout the whole passage, he's been comparing two groups of people, those in Noah's day who are ready, those who are not. Um, those who are faithful, sensible slaves, those who are evil slaves. Virgins who are ready and prepared for the bridegroom, others who were not. Uh, those who used their talents for the Lord, those who did not. Those who honored the Lord by his, their care for his people, those who did not. So to take this one section and isolate it is just to rip it out of context, to destroy its meaning, and really to, uh, I think, misinterpret the text. Anyway, that's kind of a long answer, but I think it's a good question, so I wanted to give it a little bit of time. We have someone waiting, so let, let's go to that caller. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Carl. This is John. Hey, John. Good morning. Hey, good. Hey, uh, my daughter-in-law, Kelly, you know Kelly, she's in a, uh, a ladies' group, and they were, uh, somehow or another, she asked me this question that they asked in the Bible study was, the question is asked, what does our Father in Heaven instruct us to do when faced with two wrong choices? Where in Scripture does it ever teach us that we pick the lesser of two evils? Talking about the election. Well, she, she emailed me this entire um, uh, uh, email, and the, the lady quotes a book that was written by Douglas Wilson called Future Men Raising Boys to Fight Giants. And so I did a study on this guy. And he has uh, it's Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. And I looked, went to their statement of faith, what they believe in. They believe in that they renew the covenant each week through, uh, and then they, where was it at? I wrote that down. They renew, and they believe they are, they believe and post they are post millennial. <laughs> and I never heard that, so I did a study on that, and I found out what that was all about. 
Right. And uh, so this this book is, you know, I mean, I would not recommend. She recommended it to be read, but she she goes in there and she talks about the Nephilim, which I understand the Nephilim uh, where they came from, and then in chapter uh, Genesis chapter six, and then in Je- uh, Numbers it also talks about the Nephilim. Um, so there's there's a couple of questions here. First off is what do you do when you get somebody that that tells you why do you vote for uh, the lesser of two evils? Just don't vote. And um, the Nephilim. What happened to the Nephilim if if they were sons of God had relations with women and the Nephilim came about? Weren't they? Didn't they go up in the flood? Well, it's a good question, and the, um, there, there are several questions here. Let me first just say that Doug Wilson is a brother in Christ. He's a believer. He's a gospel-preaching, you know, pastor. Now, obviously, there are some issues that we hold with a tight fist, some that we hold with an open hand. There are some issues that are tests of orthodoxy, like salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, doctrines like the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the physical, literal resurrection of Christ, the infallibility of the Bible. Those are, those are givens. Those are non-negotiables. And when people deny those, you are typically speaking to an unbeliever. Now, with that said, there are some issues that are secondary. Um, post-millennialists are pretty rare today. Uh, there was a big movement of post-millennialism in the latter half of the 19th century. And if people have ever studied hymns carefully, you'll see that some of the hymns that we even sing today in our churches, the older hymns, reflect post-millennialism. Most people haven't thought that through, but if they look carefully at some of the words, they reflect post-millennialism. And and, and for those who are listening who maybe want to study this, I did a 51-week series on Wednesday nights on eschatology. And included in that, we went through the differences between premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. But postmillennialism says that the, the reign of Messiah will take place before his literal physical return to earth. And so their basic theory, among others, is that, you know, the world can become Christianized, a better and better place. And interestingly, there's been a resurgence of post-millennialism in some Pentecostal circles, as well as uh, through guys like um, Rush Dooney and others who think uh, certain folks in the reform movement who thinks who think that things will get better and it just doesn't, you know, fit. And usually after World War One, most of the post-millennialists died out. At the end of World War II, there was virtually none less. So it's kind of surprising that they are back. So let me just say that's a secondary issue. Uh, he could be post-millennialist and, you know, he's, uh, I think he's wrong, but, you know, he's still a brother in Christ and doesn't mean he's a heretic or an apostate any more than someone who's pre-tribulational in their view of the rapture and someone who's post-tribulational, what a test of orthodoxy is, is whether one believes he's going to literally, physically, bodily return to judge the living and the dead. And again, in that Wednesday night series, I go through all the pros and cons, all the arguments used for premillennialism, amillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Premillennialism, that is that Christ's second coming happens before his literal reign upon the earth, I believe is the biblical position. Postmillennialism, like amillennialism, comes out of a, a mindset that God's done with the nation of Israel. 
that the uh, they forsook the covenant that God had made with them, and so the church is the new Israel. I don't buy that for a second. I think that the covenant God made with Abraham was unconditional in nature, um, and therefore uh, he is going to bring about the second coming through the nation of Israel. And that's where most evangelical Christians are today. But these other views do represent a minority. But again, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who hold these. Now, in reference to the Nephilim, let me just briefly answer that. The, the word is actually translated in the King James as giants. And that's uh, an interpretation of what the Hebrew word means, incorrect. They just refer to large people. And just because there's large people in Genesis 6 and later on in Numbers doesn't mean that it's referring to the same group of large people. But we do, I think, very clearly know who the large people are in Genesis 6 because we have divine commentary on it in the New Testament, in places like uh, Second Peter, the book of Jude, and so forth. And again, for someone who's wanting to study that, Um, I would encourage them to listen to my sermon on Genesis 6 because I go through all the New Testament passages that reference this. And again, we know that during the days of Noah, because Jude tells us that there were some people, um, some angels that committed some kind of heinous sexual act that was comparable to a heinous sexual act that they did in Sodom and Gomorrah. What did they do in Sodom and Gomorrah? They left their natural state. Uh, homosexuality is not natural. It is unnatural. That's how the Bible refers to it. It uses that term. Well, it says, And angels who did not keep their domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as or just like Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, in the same way as these who? It goes back to the nearest antecedent. In the same way as these angels who did not keep their proper domain, but they abandoned what they were created to do, uh, namely not ever to have sex with humans, um, in the same way, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did something that where they abandoned the natural function. Uh, they did something that they were not designed to do. Uh, Paul describes it in Romans 1, men with men, women with women. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So obviously the people who read Jude, you can read in the parallel account of Second Peter 2, they understood that there is a parallel. Jude assumes it. They understood that there was a parallel between what the angels did who abandoned their proper domain and what the uh, people of Sodom and Gomorrah did. And by the way, th- what the angels did in Second Peter 2 is connected to the time of Noah. It's connected to the time of the flood. So they understood it. And so if you go back and read the Old Testament, the only, the closest thing you can get is what we find in Genesis 6, where, again, it, it tells us what, what took place in those days. And it says that the Nephilim or the giants were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, 
and they bore children to them, those who were mighty men, who were of old, men of renown. And so it doesn't say the, the, the sons of men came into the daughters of men, but the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, a term used in the Old Testament only to refer to angels and all the other passages where the Hebrew phrase B'nai Elohim translated sons of God. It's always a reference to angels. So to think it differently here, especially in light of Second Peter 2 and Jude, uh, I think would be to be misguided. No, the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them and they were mighty men who were men of old, men of renown. So the offspring was freak. They were huge. And that's not uh, unsurprising uh, or that's not surprising to me because, um, you know, the Bible teaches that angels are greater in might and power. Now, angels, it is true, do not marry other angels. Jesus said that when he was faced with some questioning by the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. He said, well, we'll be like the angels in heaven and that neither men are married nor given in marriage in that day. Uh, in heaven, you don't continue in a marriage relationship. Uh, but with that said, that doesn't mean that angels could not have a, a physical sexual relationship with a human. And they did. Uh, when angels appear in the Bible, they always, without exception, appear in male form. And they appear as humans. People think they're human, uh, but they're not. But they are able to take on some kind of human body, just like even Satan took on an animal body earlier in Genesis, where he took on the body of a serpent. Looked different from the snakes of today, but nonetheless an animal. And so angels are able to take on human bodies such that the writer to the Hebrews said, look, you know, when you entertain strangers, recognize there's a possibility that that stranger is just not a typical human stranger. You might be entertaining an angel. And two, there are a group of angels who are in eternal bonds. There are three groups of angels that the Bible describes in terms of fallen angels. There are those who have freedom to wage war against believers. And you can read of that in Ephesians 6. You can see it illustrated in in Daniel 10 of the uh, spiritual warfare that is going on in the heavenly places in the invisible realm. But it's very real over countries and cities. And Daniel describes that. Uh, Then there are those angels who are in the abyss, fallen angels who are in the abyss. There are some angels who are given a judgment during this time where God sends them to the abyss because they step over the line of what they're supposed to do. And God is sovereign over the whole realm. Luther used to say the devil is God's angel. And it's true in the sense that God is sovereign over the devil. The devil has no authority that he can usurp from a sovereign God. Uh, But there are some angels who step out of bounds and they're put in the abyss. And during the time of the Great Tribulation, the abyss is opened up and they're freed for a period of time. And then there's a third group of fallen angels that are in eternal bonds that have absolutely no freedom whatsoever. And I believe it's, by the way, these are the angels that Jesus descended into Tartarus to preach to because this would have been one of those groups that did not hear of his sovereign resurrection. So with that said... Um, again, that's a, another question. And if you want to study it further, I have an hour long sermon on that in our series in Genesis, which you can get at searchthescriptures.org. 
and you can stream it online and watch it or, or download it into your computer in an audio file. Your third question, which deals with um, voting, you know, the lesser of two evils. In fact, I was just in a family discussion recently with my brother and my sister, and my sister said, oh, you know, I have a question for you. You know, we're having this discussion in our home about whether we as Christians should vote for Romney since he's a Mormon. We don't want to vote for Obama since he's pro-abortion, pro-homosexuality. But some of my kids are saying, should we vote for Romney because we're giving an endorsement? And I said, it's kind of interesting that you asked that. This was a discussion we had had last Tuesday and here on the Bible line last Tuesday. One of the questions that came in that we read concerned whether it was right for a Christian to vote for Obama. The other question that we didn't get to was whether it was right for a Christian to vote for Romney. Um, because we're giving an endorsement to Mormonism. So we got into the discussion. To make a long story short, I said, no, I, 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 I can't vote for uh, President Obama. Now, I pray for him because he's my president, and I respect him. And there's a lot of admirable qualities that I see in him with his wife and with his family. But then there are other things that I don't like. I don't like that he's in favor of abortion. And I cannot in good conscience vote for someone who's in favor of killing little babies. And even when he was senator, he gave credence to, you know, partial birth abortion. I, I, I can't buy that. Much less, you know, when he changed his view from the first go round, where he said initially he defined marriage between a man and a woman. And now he defines it as, um, you know, however you want to define it. And, of course, there was 134 African-American pastors, all of whom I deeply respect, who petitioned the president and said, we'd like to have a meeting with you. And he did not give them that meeting. And the head of that organization, who in turn says he represents some 3,000 African-American pastors, says our president thinks he has us in his back pocket, but he does not. And we cannot support him if he's going to endorse homosexual marriage. Now, the question then becomes, well, can't we support Romney? Because Romney's a Mormon. And certainly Mormonism will have even greater expression and credence if we have a Mormon president. Again, I hope those who are listening understand that Mormons are not Christians. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ as being a complete and total payment for sin, and therefore they don't teach that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, that works help save, though they'll refer to Jesus as the Savior of the world, though how a one who is only a man and not God can save anyone is beyond me. They deny the virgin birth and that they recreate the definition of virgin birth. They say God the Father, who they say has a human body, whom the Bible says does not, took on a human body, or in his human body, uh, had sex with Mary, and that's how Jesus came about. They deny the infallibility of the Bible. And by the way, the Book of Mormon and the Bible cannot both be true. The Bible, for instance, says that Jesus, as spoken of concerning Messiah by the prophet Micah, was born in Bethlehem of Judea. The Book of Mormon says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem, which is true. What the prophet Micah says that the New Testament writers record as being fulfilled 
or what the Book of Mormon says. They can't both be true. He's either born in Bethlehem or he's born in Jerusalem. What would the Mormons say? Well, the, the Bible's been corrupted. The only book that we can believe ultimately is the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon and their prophets who speak um, in a similar sense as Catholics, ex-cathedra, can speak in official capacity. They, they say that Jesus is returning to Missouri. He's not coming back to Missouri. He's coming back to Jerusalem. His feet are going to be planted on the Mount of Olives. So they're not Christians. Please understand this. They're not believers. So people ask me, well, are you going to vote for Romney? Now, I'm taking off my WAGP hat, Community Bible Church hat. This is not an issue of people who come to our church. We have people in both parties and in differing views and everything else. But, yeah, I'm going to vote for Romney. Uh, and I'm going to hold my nose when I pull the lever, so to speak. But why am I going to vote for him? Well, because he's the lesser of two evils. And, uh, yes, he has vacillated on this issue of abortion. And now he says he's converted and he's pro-life. Well, I, I hope so. I certainly hope so. He is, though, moral, uh, like our president is, by the way. Our president, as far as I know, is a very moral man. He's been committed to, to one woman his whole life. And uh, I deeply respect that in our president. And there were family qualities that, to me, were far more admirable when he ran than uh, some of the Republican candidates who were running last time. But lay that aside, um, you know, the next president of the United States is probably going to appoint at least three Supreme Court justices. And I do not want a Supreme Court justice who's going to basically say homosexuality has a minority status. It does not. It has nothing to do, and if you're not convinced of this, listen to my sermon I preached a couple of months ago, Is It Okay to Be Gay? And that, again, is online at cbcbuford.org or at searchthescriptures.org. It's not okay. It's wrong. It's an abomination. And any culture that has adopted homosexuality as an acceptable lifestyle has in it the seeds of self-destruction. No society has ever survived this. And what's going to happen, listen, my Christian friends, what's going to happen is if we have a Supreme Court that gives us a minority status, is what will happen at first is um, giving to churches, evangelical churches like the one I pastor that believes homosexuality is a sin, giving to those churches will first of all lose their tax-exempt status, guaranteed. And we're not far away from that. There are senators right now in the United States Senate who want that to be a reality, but they can't pull it off yet. But they may pull it off through the Supreme Court. Um, And there will eventually come a time that it will be a hate crime. You say that's just a dramatic talk, is it? Was it dramatic talk, um, you know, 40 years ago? when it was against the law to be engaged in a homosexual act in all 50 states? Listen, we're we're moving. Now we're writing laws not against homosexuality, which Paul tells Timothy that that's one of the functions of law, to write laws against perjurers and kidnappers and murderers and homosexuals and includes them all together in the same group. Now we're writing laws in favor of this behavior to give people insurance benefits and adoptive rights and on and on and on we could go. 
Listen, we're moving in that direction. You want to see persecution in the church, you're inviting it. You're inviting it. And all it takes for good men to do, uh, for evil to prosper, is for good men to do nothing, as Edmund Burke used to say. And so, um, no, I'm I'm not going to vote for Obama, but I'm going to hold my nose when I vote for Romney. And when I talk about him, though I will pray for him like I faithfully pray for our president now, when I pray for him and when I speak of him, I will speak of him for what he is, a Mormon, an unbeliever, a lost man in need of salvation. And I will not give his Mormonism any credence, and I hope it will be an opportunity for discussion if he becomes president. I'm not sure that he's going to become president. I think God may just continue to judge America and allow us to get what we have been asking for. Well, that really brings us to our next question. This uh, person just uh, dictated this. They'd like your opinion about whether we should embrace the trials of this world because they're evidence of the last days. And should we be worried at how bad things are getting, or should we just be encouraged because it means we're getting closer? Well, um, you know, there have been different extremes, I guess, that God's people have taken in the course of church history in reference to the second coming. There have always been those groups and people who have sat on their hands and done nothing. In fact, Paul faced that problem even amongst the church at Thessalonica. If you write, if you read his, his letter to the church at Thessalonica, he, he has to reprove some of the Christians there because of a false view they had adopted concerning the return of Jesus from heaven. And so um, just read Second uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter 3. Let me read a couple of verses. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to to this. He had the right, but in order to offer ourselves as a model uh, that you might follow our example. So even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And again, this is given in the historical context of some people who said, Jesus is coming. You know, we need to be ready. And, you know, they're quitting their jobs. It's just like this fellow who had this system of Christian radio stations who came on the air, you know, a few years ago and had people convinced that Jesus was coming. He'd set the date, changed it, set it again, changed it, set it again. I'm not sure how many followers he still has, but people sold their homes. They did everything. And that's not the stance we are to take. We are to be busy until Jesus comes. Now, listen. That doesn't mean I don't try to change things. Um, I should do everything that I should to change things. I don't say, well, look, you know, it's going to be super evil when Jesus comes. Bring it on. Let's let's vote for a super evil president. Of course not. That's folly. We are to be light. We are to be salt. The light is to dispel the darkness. The salt is to preserve righteousness. But when Jesus um, spoke in the Olivet Discourse, of um, what's going to take place. For instance, in to give you an example, in Matthew 24, 6, and you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. So there's going to be some things that are 
to happen, and we shouldn't be frightened by it. God is sovereign. Hey, look, I tell people, what's the worst thing that can happen? <laughs> we die, someone comes into your house, kills you because you're a Christian, you go to heaven. I mean, the, the alternative is not a bad thing. Uh, so we do all that we can. We are to be found busy. We are to be occupying, as the old King James rendered it, when Jesus comes. When he comes, I don't want to be sitting on my hands talking about Bible prophecy. I'd like to be winning someone to Christ. I'd like to be loving my family, serving in the kingdom of God, being a viable witness for him. That's what I want to be found doing when he comes. I don't want to be uh, waiting around. And there's a lot of prophecy nuts who are doing nothing with Bible prophecy. And what's really interesting is when you read Bible prophecy in almost every text in the New Testament, there's an accompanying command of how it should change our life, how we should be different. So no, I, I, I'm, I'm not afraid. Um, I, I don't know whether Jesus is going to come, you know, in the next uh, five or 10 years. Nobody knows that. I, I tell people all the time, we, we have one of three options that are open to us. Either we're going to go into another dark ages. That could happen. It's happened before in human history. There could be a sweeping world revival where tens of thousands of people come to Christ and Maybe the Lord will allow it to go on for another couple hundred years. Who knows? Maybe a couple thousand years. We don't know. Or third, Jesus will come back. Those are the three options. Now, when I read my Bible, I realize that God is setting the stage for the return of his son. With the birth of Israel, with the fall of communism and Jewish people from all over Eastern Europe coming now into Israel, uh, with Israel. Ethiopian Jews from North Africa who are coming back to Israel. I mean, God is just setting the stage. God is doing things that someone who knows their Bible, their eyes are wide open. And I'm, I'm ready. I'm waiting. But I'm working, too. And that's my plan. So to get back to the lesser of two evils, there are some groups like Vision Form, which, you know, sometimes those guys, I think— um, I mean, they're good guys. I love them. But sometimes I think they're a little bit off key on some things. But there's some guys like that who will say, ah, you know, we vote for nobody. Uh, well, when if you vote for neither, uh, you know, you voted. You have voted. But they would argue that, you know, we can't vote for either because neither represent the Lord God. Well, you know, Look, we've had a lot of presidents in our history who haven't represented the Lord God. We've had a lot of Unitarian presidents. And I know Unitarianism has obviously evolved through the years and it's changed, but still we had Unitarian presidents who were anything but Christian, but they were moral. Thomas Jefferson, at least during his life, as far as I know, was not a born-again Christian. Maybe he had a change of heart, but he was very moral, highly moral, highly respective of God but not of the born-again type. Again, God alone knows whether he repented. You know, his Jeffersonian Bible, he went through systematically and created a text of the New Testament where he cut out all the passages that dealt with the miraculous. But still, he represented a lot of moral values that we would espouse as believers. I'd rather have someone like that than someone who's godless and immoral. And so, you know, vote. Vote your conscience. You'll give an account for your vote, just like I'll give an account for my vote. Um, and 
that's all I have to say on that. All right. Uh, well, uh, this is not a question. It's actually a comment that was just sent to us via email. This person writes, I am a listener to the Light 88.7 FM. The station is blatantly anti-President Obama. Your news sound bites and interview programs only depict him as a president and as a person who hates Christian values. The station is so biased and one-sided in its politics, it makes me uncomfortable. Your stated mission is to share the love and knowledge of Jesus Christ as the only hope for eternal life with God, both now and in the life to come. Maybe you should add that to your political agenda. Well, I appreciate the comment. You know, it's a free country and we have freedom of speech still. And so I'm glad you could call. But listen, if you had a radio station, what would you do? Would you, um, if if you had a, a president, would you uh, endorse him for wanting to kill little babies? I mean, do you think we have a problem in America with 50 million Americans who are missing through the sin of abortion? Hey, listen, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, exploding deficits in light of uh, the baby boomers who are, you know, um, all coming of age. And in 2008, the year our economy went south was the year that the baby boomers began to retire and so on. And we've got this doom and gloom you know, problem because we have a so-called Social Security box that's supposed to have $72 trillion in that and for Medicare, and there's nothing in it. You know, uh, maybe there's a problem that there's 50 million Americans. You know, I was in Jordan a few weeks ago, and uh, 80% of the people in the country of Jordan are under the age of 20. That was staggering to me. And by the way, it doesn't fluctuate much in most of those Arab nations. Most of them are 70 to 80% of the people are under the age of 20. In America, now the majority is over 50, and we are graying fast. We are sowing the seeds of destruction, and if you're a true patriot, and you care about human life, then my hope you will only support a candidate. I don't care if they're Democrat or Republican. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm a Christocrat. And I'm going to vote for a person who best represents God's values. And if that's someone who's going to honor human life, then I'm going to honor that person. If that is a person, by, by honor, I mean with my vote. I still honor the president because I'm called to. That's a command. And again, there are many things. I, president Obama is a very likable guy. And he's articulate. He's well-educated. He's a tremendous orator. There's a lot of positive things. But just like his vice president, who's in favor of homosexual marriage and killing little babies. I can't vote for someone who's in favor of that. That is the most un-American thing I think a Christian could do because you're basically saying, God, come on, bring it on, bring the judgment. And what really scares me, what really, really, truly scares me is what will happen with Israel. I believe with all my heart the only reason we haven't already imploded as a nation is because we are the single biggest ally of Israel. And I just wonder what will happen in a second term with Obama 
if he will really be pro-Israel. God will have no reason left to allow us to continue as a nation. Now, some people don't think God's involved in the affairs of men and nations. They obviously don't know their Bibles. He is. He's very much involved in the affairs of men and nations. And if our uh, leaders do not stand behind Israel, God has no further reason to bless this country. I'm telling you in two to three years, if we go against Israel, we'll be in a depression. There'll be riots in the streets. The supermarket shelves will be empty. We're going to have real problems in America like we've never seen before. You think that's dramatic talk? Maybe it is. I hope I'm wrong. Believe me. I've got children and grandchildren and friends and church people that I care for, but I'm not afraid because God is sovereign. And I know there's coming a time when the nations of the world will oppose Israel. That's what the Bible teaches. And it's going to usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ from heaven. Mm. Well, we seem to be on a particular topic and role. Uh, uh, By the way, um, this coming Sunday is uh, by many accounts called Pulpit Freedom Sunday. I don't know if you were familiar with that. No, I never heard of it before. Okay. Tell me what it is. Well, it's uh, actually it was started a few years ago, and it encourages evangelical pastors to preach the truth regarding uh, attitudes and government and, and the like, and rather than to be concerned about the retribution that might happen in terms of what you were talking about, uh, revocation of the uh, uh, deductions from income tax and various yeah, It's never like happened, obviously, you know, and uh, Jerry Falwell did a tremendous job documenting that while he was alive uh, before our last president, uh, before President Obama was elected, and he died not long before that. But let me just say this, Community Bible Church is not a political organization. Now, someone calls and they ask me on the air, I'm not going to lie to them. I'm going to say, well, you know, I don't really have an opinion or you don't know me if you don't think I have an opinion. (laughs) But, um, you know, I don't make the Republican, Democrat uh, or any other party an issue in our church because I want to reach everyone in this community I can for Christ. When you get to heaven, it's not going to be an issue. Were you Republican or Democrat? The only thing that's going to matter is whether or not you receive Jesus as your Lord. And so remember, a natural mind, a natural man does not comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot comprehend them because they're spiritually approved. So if I stand up in a pulpit and I give endorsement to a Democrat or I give an endorsement to a Republican, and that's what I am all about as a pastor, then I have really, truly missed uh, an opportunity to win people to Jesus. And I don't want to do that. I, I want to win anyone and everyone. And what is interesting is if you come to Community Bible Church, we are a very diverse church. We represent and picture our community. And these political issues are not issues of, of division in our church. But when there is a political issue that enters into the moral realm, I, as a man of God, as a, a preacher of God, I have to address those issues. That's what God has called me in every born-again Bible-believing preacher to do to address the, the moral issues. So um, anyway, let's, right. let's go to the next well, question. Well, so this question ties in with all of that. This per- next caller said that he heard a major Christian figure say that most of the current churches no longer publish guides for policies of presidential candidates and what the moral standards of the candidates are. 
He said this used to be done routinely by our churches, but it seems like the present church is afraid to do this. What do you think about this? Well, I don't think they're afraid to do it. Uh, Ralph Reed's organization was the one who largely did that. Um, and they would have uh, supposedly nonpartisan uh, guides uh, where you know different candidates were rated on different moral issues. Uh, for one, I don't think there's any need for it, let's say, in a presidential election. I mean, unless you get your head in the sand and you don't know where the different candidates stand in reference to abortion and Israel and uh, homosexuality values. and family values. And those are moral issues. You know, listen, it's a moral issue whether you support Israel or not. Uh, just read Genesis. God will bless the nation that blesses Israel. And you could say the same is true with an individual. Um, that's what the Bible teaches. And God will curse a nation that curses Israel. And Israel, history documents that. So those are moral issues. So unless you just got your head in the sand, if you do, you're not going to vote anyway. So to me, it's kind of a non-issue. And why create a a, a, a a potential problem that is unnecessary when you're trying to reach people from every stripe of the political realm with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859. We've got about six minutes left. And uh, our next caller from Richmond Hill, his name is Daryl, would like you to explain the condition of the Koine Greek as far as whether that language originally had either all caps or all small letters, or was it like the English language today using both large and small letters? Um, he says he's very right. new in biblical language studies and has noticed the Westcott and Hort and the TR seem to capitalize some letters, but is that something they exercise liberty on? Well, it's a good question, and it's not that one is right or one is wrong. It is true the oldest manuscripts that we have are in all what we call unicles, or we call capital letters. Uh, it's interesting to look at ancient manuscripts, and you will discover that they're all in caps, so all the Greek capitals are used. Um, in fact, there's no spaces between the words and very little punctuation. Some manuscripts have no punctuation, and those that do, it's used very, very rarely. Primarily because in Greek, it's obvious by the way a sentence is structured, whether it's a question or uh, whether it should you know, have a sense of exclamation or, or whatever. But understand question marks, exclamations, periods, and so forth, for the most part are not found in any of the ancient manuscripts. Uh, a little bit later on, uh, they developed a um, manuscript copies were copied in all lowercase letters. And it would be parallel to, say, our cursive writing. And so at least from the 8th century on, virtually all the manuscripts are all lowercase letters, no caps. So you got really ancient manuscripts, all caps, no lowercase. That's not to say that there couldn't have been ancient manuscripts with lowercase letters because they had the lowercase letters in Greek during the time of the first century. Uh, but it's kind of, it was their cursive. Their cursive writing was lowercase letters. Their printed writing, so to speak, would be all caps. So when you, uh, when archaeologists dig up, you know, ancient artifacts, I was in Israel just recently and uh, in a place called, you know, Caesarea by the sea is a uh, piece of stone. It's actually a copy of the original. The original is in the uh, in a museum, 
but it's a copy, an identical copy of a stone that they dug up with the inscription uh, with Pontius Pilate's name on it. Until 1961, some of the skeptics said, well, you know, the Bible talks about this guy Pontius Pilate, but history records him nowhere. Well, they, they, they've since dug up some artifacts with his name on it, all capital letters. That was their cursive way of doing it. As uh, we progressed in time and we created, you know, Greek manuscripts, especially during the time of the Reformation, then kind of like English and other languages, proper names were capitalized. The first word in a sentence was capitalized. So if you pick up a Greek New Testament today, you're going to find, you know, the first word in a sentence is capitalized and proper names is capitalized and all the punctuation there. Um, and again, that's just for convenience and for reading the, the, the scripture and the original, uh, just like we have, you know, chapter and verse divisions, they're there for convenience and uh, ease of reading and finding texts and, and so forth. So anyway, I hope that answers the question. Good, good question. Okay, about two and a half minutes. Let's see if we can get this one from Richard in Bellingham, Massachusetts, who has recently come out of the Mormon faith and is struggling with the Trinity doctrine. The Pauline letters salutation address both the Father and the Son, but not the Holy Spirit. Why isn't the Spirit mentioned if he is part of the Trinity? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity is found throughout God's Word. It's not, you know, simply a Pauline doctrine. And Paul mentions, uh, indeed, that there are, and teaches that there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons. uh, That they are equal in power, nature, and eternality. But you see the doctrine of the Trinity all the way through the Word of God in the Incarnation. Uh, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the term Most High is a term referenced to the Father. Yet the Holy Spirit is going to bring this about. So you see, you know, three members of the Godhead, all three. In the baptism of Christ, you see, you know, the Son who's being baptized, the, the Spirit who descends as a dove, the Father's voice that comes from heaven. Uh, In the resurrection, you know, the Spirit of God in Romans 8 is given credit with raising Jesus from the dead. In John 2, Jesus said, you destroy this body, I'll raise it up in three days. He'll later say, and that's in John 2. In John 10, he'll later say, I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it back up. So he takes credit for the resurrection. Another passage of Scripture, God the Father is given credit for having raised the Son from the dead. And again, the members are inseparable, so you would expect that. Um, In the creation of the world, uh, you you see all members of the Trinity that are involved. Uh, The Spirit is involved in creation in Genesis 1. Uh, The Father is credited with uh, creation in Hebrews 1. Uh, The Son is credited with creation in Colossians 1. So it's not surprising because they are equal. And yet then you have Trinitarian passages by Paul where he mentions, you know, all three members of the Trinity. And there are some passages that maybe they're not mentioned in one verse, like in 2 Corinthians, but they're mentioned in the same paragraph. But remember, too, the Spirit is kind of the hidden person of the Trinity in the sense that he didn't come to promote himself. He came to promote Christ. We need a lot more time with that question, but we're out of time. Have a great day.